it. Welcome to the podcast edition of Coaching Through Chaos, bringing you what you need to succeed. Now, here is your host, Dr. Colleen Mullen. Welcome to the Coaching Through Chaos podcast, bringing you what you need to succeed. And I'm your host, Dr. Colleen Mullen. And as always, we're bringing you new episodes every Tuesday, and you'll find an article to go along with this episode on my blog at coachingthroughchaos.com. Today's episode, and even myself, is, is a bit somber. Last week was National Suicide Prevention Week, and inside of that on September 10th was World Suicide Prevention Day. And this topic is very close and personal to me, and I'll tell you about that in a minute. My guest today is Dr. Julie Goldstein Grummet, who is the Director of Prevention and Practice at the Suicide Prevention Resource Center. My life was forever changed on July 1st, 2007. That was the day that my baby brother, Scott, took his own life at the age of 28. He suffered for many years with severe depression and went in and out of getting help for that. And he cycled through suicidal periods in which he often made actual attempts. And I know from everything that I know that anytime someone makes an attempt, they're so much more, in fact, 86% more likely to make other attempts in their life. And my brother struggled since he was a teenager. And even though myself and the rest of my family was aware of his struggle, and we all tried to help him many times, and we all have our own personal struggle with how we tried to help him. When that call came that he succeeded in his suicide, it was devastating. My role in my family has always been the messenger between other people, whether it was between my siblings as we all lived far apart, or between my parents after their divorce. And in this situation, I was the messenger to my father. And I will never forget having to tell him that Scott was gone. In the end, he did not include us in his plan. So we really didn't know that that was where he was emotionally again. I even have a voicemail I saved from him the day before uh, he died. He sounded happy and he said he was just calling me to say hi because it had been about a week or so since we had last spoken. And that was the last time I heard his voice. This episode is going to focus on information about suicide prevention. You're going to hear Dr. Julie tell us some stats and prevalence rates. We're going to go over warning signs in both kids and adults. But I want to tell you about the grief that a family goes through after a suicide. It's different than our normal grief process. I think there's actually an added stage in the grief process when you lose someone to a suicide. And I think that added stage is of guilt. I know realistically that we were not privy to his plans, so there was nothing we could do to stop him. But I'm positive that we all have our own moments of feeling like, what if I'd called him back that day? Or what if I could tell 
from talking to him. And I'm sure my brothers and my mother, my sister, and maybe my father, if he had spoken to him as well, we all had those feelings of just feeling guilty that we could have, should have, would have said or done something different. Many of us have been involved in his suicidal thoughts in the past where we did have to intervene and we were compelled to do so, whether he wanted to hate us afterwards or not. We all overstepped boundaries with him to try to save his life at different times, and we did. And this time, we just didn't have the ability to do that, as we did not know. This kind of loss is such a sad and tragic thing. And as you can hear, I'm having a hard time doing this recording. When someone you love deeply chooses to leave this world, and for Scott, I look at it as he was 28. I hadn't even finished my education by that time and gotten on with my real adult life, I feel. And I keep thinking if he had just stuck around, he could see just how much better things could have been. But I don't know, that's my own projection and I think my own guilt. But watching him choose to leave before he really even started finding his own ground as an adult and living as an adult, it changes how you see things. It does comfort me to think that he might be at peace. I had a dream about him a few years ago that actually led to a tattoo that I have, which reminds me to be mindful of the transient nature of life. There's not a day that goes by that I don't think of him. Scott was a sweet, kind-hearted person who just struggled so much. Maybe you're listening and you relate to that, or you know someone that does. Please keep listening as Dr. Julie talks about all the help that the Suicide Prevention Resource Center has to offer. Before we get into the interview, though, let me give you the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline number. This is a 24-7 number that you can call to talk to someone if you're feeling suicidal. The number is 1-800-273-TALK, T-A-L-K. If you're contemplating ending your life or just feeling a deep sense of despair, please call them and get started towards helping yourself out of the pain. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and we're going to get into the interview with Dr. Julie Goldstein-Gromit of the Suicide Prevention Resource Center. You're listening to Coaching Through Chaos, your host, Dr. Colleen Muller, bringing you what you need to succeed. So I'm here today with Julie Goldstein-Grummet, who is the Director of Prevention and Practice at the Suicide Prevention Resource Center. Hi, Julie. Thanks for being with me today. Thank you for having me. Can you tell us what is the Suicide Prevention Resource Center and how did it get established? So the Suicide Prevention Resource Center, or SPRC, is the nation's only federally supported resource center devoted to advancing the national strategy for suicide prevention. Funding first became available to establish a federally funded suicide prevention resource center in 2002, and we've been fortunate enough to be the recipient of this grant funding three times since 2002. Fantastic. And um, what does the SPRC offer? SPRC provides technical assistance, training, and materials to increase the knowledge and expertise 
of suicide prevention practitioners, really anybody serving people at risk for suicide. We're also the home to the National Action Alliance for Suicide Prevention, which is a public-private partnership established to reduce death by suicide by 20% in the next five years, and we provide all of the support to the Action Alliance. We also have a lot of programming and materials available. We are a resource center, so we provide technical assistance in areas such as health and tools for the state, tribal community, and campus grantees that SAMHSA provides called the Garrett Lee Smith Youth Suicide Prevention Grant. We have a training institute, which includes face-to-face workshops, webinars, and several online courses people can take. We have a host of publications on our library and in our our resource directory. We really are a clearinghouse for all the resources that somebody might need to engage in the suicide prevention world. And really, I think one of the areas that we excel at is partnership building. SPRC really works to bring partners together to promote suicide prevention, and especially in areas where suicide prevention might not typically be a priority for that type of setting or, or area of interest. So we really excel at bringing together both health and mental health providers and other stakeholders to strengthen their capacity to prevent suicide among all the different groups and entities that they work with. Well, that's really comprehensive what you all have to offer. And you mentioned this action line. Is that the hotline also? We don't run a hotline. We're not a crisis center and we don't provide any direct service. We are the home to the National Action Alliance for Suicide Prevention, which was established in 2010. It was really the vision, and it was a vision of the of the Surgeon General in 2002 that such a a partnership of the of the private world as well as the public world. We have a lot of public entities engaged in suicide prevention, but sometimes things take a long time in establishing grant funding or establishing mechanisms to improve suicide or track suicide in the federal world. And so, by having the private partners on board, they have the ability sometimes to do work faster, to provide financial support, to try out initiatives in a very um, fast way that other entities might have to take longer before they're able to do it. And it also allows us to bring together fields and stakeholders who probably don't typically come around the table to talk about suicide prevention. So the Action Alliance has an executive committee comprised of people in the entertainment world, veterans affairs, faith-based communities, healthcare entities. So it's a really diverse, it's chaired currently by a railroad executive, along with somebody from the Veterans Administration. So it's a really diverse group of people, each of whom has to struggle with suicide in their own workplace or among their own members. Um, and can bring something unique to the table by partnering with others. That's wonderful how diverse it is. You get all these different people together working on on a problem, and inevitably there's going to be some creative solutions for it. Right now as we're talking, we're in the middle of Suicide Prevention Week, and it's part of National Suicide Prevention Day is also along in this month. What is the scope of the problem in the United States of suicide? How bad of a problem is this? Suicide is the 10th leading cause of death in the United States. So given that it is preventable and 
other leading causes of death tend to be related to physical health problem or accidents, this is something that we could reduce. It's the third leading cause of death for youth ages 10 to 14 and the second leading cause of death for people ages 15 to 34. But I don't want to assume that that means suicide is a problem that we should focus on only with regard to youth. In fact, in the United States, it's middle-aged men, ages 45 to 64, who have the highest rates of suicide. So because it's such a leading cause of death in youth, I think we tend to focus on really the issue of suicide in youth. But really, it is also one of the leading causes of death um, for middle-aged men, and we need to really focus our efforts there. Does the SPRC have any compiled research on why that may be that certain populations have this higher risk or are more apt to attempt or commit suicide? I think the awareness that it's middle-aged men has been something that's only come into the purview of suicide prevention experts in the last couple of years. There was a lot of funding and a lot of attention on youth. And so I think in some ways we know a lot more about youth suicide. And we're, we're trying to learn now about what it is about middle-aged men that if we knew more, we could look to reduce suicide. It's not one type of demographic, but I do think that as a whole, men often use more lethal means than women do. So when they attempt suicide, they're more likely to die by suicide. Men typically are less likely to ask for help um, or be in the care of a behavioral health care provider. I think sometimes we expect that people will just tell us that they're feeling suicidal and they'll reach out, but often people in general don't do that, men in particular, without stereotyping. I think there is a certain stigma involved in men reaching out for mental health care or in the way societies use men who reach out or even people who reach out for mental health care for that matter. And then there are just cultural variations in health seeking that account for these differences. As you're talking, I had a little flashback. I worked on a suicide hotline back in New York in the late 90s, and I used to go around and educate people at schools about prevention. And I remembered a statistic that men actually commit and and finish suicide four times more than women. And when I was doing the research on SPRC and on our interview, I noticed that that statistic still holds true. And I think you mentioned that men are more apt to do more violent things, which would ensure that the suicide goes through, whereas women take a lesser path to it at times. Men use more lethal means, and and if that's the case, then they're just more likely to die in that first attempt than a woman. So women make more attempts, men die more frequently by suicide, but it would account for that typically as the means that they use. Okay. And when we talk about things now, we're Getting into, you mentioned that there was a lot of known um, funding and, and studies on kids. And, you know, this is back to school week for many kids, at least out here on the West Coast. Maybe kids that started back last week, too, on the East Coast. What are some of the risk factors for suicides in kids and teens? And then I'm going to ask you the same question for adults as well, if there are any different factors. What do we know as far as if somebody could think of five things to watch for in kids? There's this difference between risk factors and warning signs, right? Risk factors are things that anybody might have, but it doesn't mean that because you have a risk factor that you're necessarily going to make a suicide attempt or or die by suicide. It just means that these are factors that might cause somebody at some point to think about suicide versus a warning sign, which is more that somebody may be in starting to consider suicide and we have to intervene. 
the risk factors are not so different for youth versus adults. In general, risk factors are things like having a mental health disorder, like a mood disorder, an anxiety disorder, using alcohol and drugs. Excessive use can certainly reduce somebody's inhibitions. And so if somebody's considering suicide and they have access to lethal means and they're using drugs and alcohol, well, then they may be more likely to make a suicide attempt. Other risk factors for suicide are people who tend to be very hopeless or have impulsive or aggressive tendencies, people with histories of trauma, abuse, recent losses. And for a kid, that could be even a, a relationship breakup. Consider you know, a 15 or 16-year-old who thought this was the love of their life and they'd marry them because they have nothing to compare that to. They don't understand sort of the nuances of relationships. That loss can be profound, and as adults, we really need to look at that and and understand that how the, the meaning of that for the child, even if it wouldn't have the same meaning for us as a middle-aged woman. So it could be things like loss, like loss of relationships, for abuse, or changing schools, changing neighborhoods, loss of a parent, whether it's due to even divorce or or death or incarceration, anything that that alters their day-to-day expectations. In an adult, it could be other types of losses, divorce, loss of a job, loss of a a spouse, things like that. Those are risk factors, right? So what would be some of the warning signs? We want people listening to be able to go, okay, well, have I seen any of this either in their teen or in in, in an adult friend or a partner? What would be a warning sign? Warning signs that we have to take seriously is if somebody is threatening to hurt or kill themselves or they talk about wanting to hurt or kill themselves. So whenever somebody says something like that, we need to take it seriously. If somebody is actively looking for ways to kill him or herself, like getting access to firearms or pills or other means, or if somebody's talking about or writing about death, dying by suicide, especially when these things are out of the ordinary for that individual. These are warning signs. These can mean that somebody is starting to really think about suicide, and it's really essential to be very direct and ask, are they thinking of suicide? They're noticing a change. These are concerning warning signs. And they need to know if the person is thinking about suicide so they can help them. Okay. So it's verbal expression and that writing about it, just kind of being open about talking about their own death. Right. So if they threaten to hurt or kill him or herself or talk about wanting to hurt or kill him or herself, they're looking for the ways to kill him or herself, and they're talking about or writing about death and suicide, those would be warning signs that you would want to take seriously. Right. And those are great things to point out with, like I mentioned, kids going back to school, teenagers. There are some kids that are just dramatic. It's their norm to write about the the darker side of life. But if there's a kid that just all of a sudden starts doing something like that, that's something to really look at. Yes, I agree. And I also think that one of the things we need to be really careful about is saying somebody is attention-seeking or they don't really mean that because they were punished. Things we shouldn't attribute sort of our expectations on why a person is behaving that way. It's really critical, I think, that we ask, you know, what does that mean to you? Why why would you write about things like that? Why is that important to you? Tell me more. Certainly. And some people are, are oriented around those things in general, and some people implement them in reaction as we're talking about this, that something may have happened to trigger that response in them or that focus. Let's talk a little bit about prevention approaches. 
When you go to the SPRC website, it's really comprehensive. And they talk about three different types of approaches to prevention programs, public health approach, strategic planning, and a comprehensive approach. What makes those approaches different? And then my question is, are they implemented separately or would a community use all of those approaches in designing a prevention program? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I think the thing that we have to think about is that Suicide prevention requires multiple coordinated interventions. We have to do system-wide transformation as well as individual level change and a prolonged, sustained effort. We can't, I think the unfortunate thing that happens sometimes is we have an infusion of grant funding, embed a whole lot of practices or programs, and then the funding goes away and it stops. And most of the time, you can expect that when the funding stops and the programming stops, you may see a a rise back in the rate of suicide. But I think what we have to think about is that the public health approach really understands where we can look within the public that puts people at risk for suicide as well as what protects people from suicide. It's population-based. It's the idea of wearing seatbelts in the car. And how can we take suicide prevention to that level through early intervention efforts? We have to consider that suicide isn't purely a problem for the mental health community. It has to be recognized that it's a public health approach because most people aren't going to mental health providers when they're at risk for suicide. The vast majority of people are not seen by mental health when they're at risk. They go to primary care. They sometimes go to the emergency department or they struggle alone and and then make a suicide attempt. And we wonder, well, how does that happen? So we have to be able to recognize signs and and that everybody can be somebody who plays a role in recognizing those signs, not just people who this is their professional job. So that's kind of the public health approach. Strategic planning means that you know the rates of suicide in your community and who's at risk. So, for example, a lot of communities target school-based suicide prevention, but if the youth who are at risk are not in school, and there are considerably higher rates of suicide in middle-aged men, then it doesn't make sense to do school-based suicide prevention and expect your suicide rates to go down. So strategic planning means you understand the prevalence of suicide and the incidence of suicide in your community, and then you pick programs and an approach to target suicide that's unique to your community. And that's where you pick up the comprehensive approach which is you don't pick out one program, you don't just sort of do one thing, like if we train up a lot of people, we'll improve suicide. It requires a a multi-component approach if we really want to affect suicide. We have to identify the people who are at risk. We have to increase help seeking. We have to provide access to mental health services. We have to have networks available for when somebody comes out of care, whether it's mental health or an inpatient psychiatric hospital, and connect them to services. We have to restrict access to lethal means. We have to provide mechanisms for them to increase their protective factors or life skills, and then promote connectedness. And it's really, in the absence of having all of that comprehensive approach available, it's going to be very hard to tackle suicide. And I think I heard you say as you were talking in here, did you say that usually when funding is available and the programs are implemented, they absolutely see the correlation when everything's in place of suicide rates going up after funding is cut off and the programs have dissipated? I don't know that we can make that kind of a connection. There's a lot of environmental factors at play as well. 
So there are a couple of studies, the Garrett Lee Smith grant that CAMSA funded, there are a couple of recent studies that have compared communities where they had Garrett Lee Smith funding against similar neighborhoods or communities where they um, did not have funding. And they did see a reduction in suicide rates, but very hard to measure. We're looking. We're really trying to get better at measuring the impact of these programs. I see. So in comparison to other communities in, a, in, in new studies, they're starting to see a correlation. I can give you another example if you like. Sure. So another example is with regard to the comprehensive approach. There's an approach that the Action Alliance launched that FPRC now supports as a program called Zero Suicide. It's the idea of a comprehensive approach to suicide care and health care systems. I think historically we thought if you identify somebody at risk for suicide and get them to the mental health provider, well, then everything will be okay. And what we found is that many mental health providers really didn't know how to treat suicide directly. They didn't get training in graduate school or CEUs, and they really weren't very well prepared. And if somebody didn't show up for an appointment, there wasn't a lot of follow-up or mechanisms to keep that person in care. So several healthcare systems in the last five to 10 years have adopted what we call the comprehensive approach to suicide care or zero suicide. And they've been able to reduce suicide rates for the patients enrolled in their care by as much as 70%. It's a huge number. It's been a sustained approach, multi-component across an entire healthcare system where somebody comes for support. And we know that those rates of suicide among their patient population are much, much lower than systems that are not using this comprehensive zero suicide approach, even by comparison in these own healthcare systems to where they were prior to implementing this comprehensive approach. Systems that implement it saw a reduction of 70% within the healthcare set. Right, 70%, certainly an incredible number. Thank you for pointing that out. Now, you mentioned uh, lots of people have roles in suicide prevention. It's not just the mental health providers. So in a community, who would have a role in suicide prevention? Yeah, so the revised National Strategy for Suicide Prevention really emphasizes the role every American can play in protecting their friends, their family members, their colleagues. There's guidance in the National Strategy for schools, for businesses, for healthcare systems, for behavioral health clinicians, other sectors that... And the national strategy takes into account decades of research. Again, we can't solve the problem of suicide by relying on any one system like healthcare or behavioral healthcare to to reduce the rates of suicide. It really is everybody at the table, each playing a role. Certainly within mental health care, we need training of mental health providers. We need better access to care within just healthcare systems like primary care and emergency departments. We need those systems to be prepared that many people will walk through their door at risk for suicide, and it may not be a question that that they always ask. And then it's other systems and thinking, where are the people at risk in your community going? So if it's middle-aged men, perhaps it's in the workplace, perhaps it's in, in the schools, perhaps it's in other areas like first responders who uh, might be seeing a lot of people at risk for suicide the businesses, who sits around the table, who has a stake in really preventing suicide among their family, their friends, and their colleagues that could sit at the table and think about ways to partner to improve suicide in their community. So again, that whole diverse approach of figuring out who's at risk and how to then 
meet them where they're at so that they get the message. Correct. And it's everything. So it's sort of what we were talking about earlier. It's both who has the ability to do screening and identify people at risk. And perhaps it's a manager in a workplace noticing that somebody hasn't been coming into work a lot and taking a lot of sick leave. They may not see that their role is suicide prevention, but perhaps that's why the person is not coming to work. Or what happens when somebody is discharged from an emergency department or a hospital? Chronic pain is linked to suicide. So we have to think outside the box of just mental health responsibility to care for people at risk for suicide and, and understand that anybody in a system in a community could, could engage with people at risk and does have a role to play in terms of identifying people and providing support, linking them to appropriate care. And before we move on to the next question, I want to point out that the SPRC website has some of the roles broken down with reading material or educational material for the different people in the community to understand what their role may be in suicide prevention, which I thought was really helpful to see because it can feel overwhelming to hear that everybody has a role. But then SPRC makes it understandable as far as the educational materials that's on the website to uh, let people know how they can be of service in suicide prevention. The SPRC supports evidence-based practices and prevention programs. And for those that don't know, can you tell us what that means and how that would be implemented in a prevention plan? Evidence-based really means it's based on scientific research. And it's really important picking programs to implement in a community that the programs are evidence-based. And in order to do some type of a strategic plan, you really need to pick programs that fit what, what are the outcomes that you're hoping to achieve. There probably isn't one single best program that when implemented will reduce suicide in your community. You have to think about this multi-component approach. Is it how are we going to identify people at risk for suicide? How are we going to increase awareness? How are we going to improve health seeking? How are we going to support people who recently perhaps were left a hospital? So you have to think about programming in a community that is evidence-based and comprehensive and also targets the area that you are really working to achieve and see the outcomes that you are hoping for. Would SPRC be a place where a person would turn to to find out what are evidence-based programs that they could implement? Yes, you could come to the SPRC website, sprc.org, and find a list of some of those practices. Great. Now, moving into the personal side of this, what can a person do if they know someone who expresses suicidal thoughts or they believe their friend is giving off warning signs? I think the most important thing is to ask and be direct. You're not going to put the thought into somebody's head. You're not going to make them angry. When people are at risk for suicide, they're in distress. And sometimes it's hard to share the way you're feeling. But when asked directly, We know that people very and most often answer directly, yes, I'm struggling with suicide. If you don't ask directly, you won't know. If you make an assumption that this is not the kind of person who would kill themselves, often you're wrong. I think we often feel like that after somebody dies. I had no idea. I never thought he would do that. So I don't think there is that one type of person that one demographic, that one approach to recognizing who's at risk for suicide, anybody can be at risk of suicide. So we have to ask directly, be very supportive, non-judgmental, 
many things that happen that got the person thinking about suicide, so you can't solve their problem. If somebody's struggling with thoughts of suicide, it's not the time to say, let's tackle why you're feeling that way and solve the issue of the breakup or the job loss or whatever that got them feeling that way. The most important thing is to get them help, get them to a mental health provider. And I hope you agree with me. I think it'd be important to point out that when someone's doing that, they they often take the risk. I hear a lot of people say, oh, but my friend's going to hate me or they're going to be so mad at me, or when we talk with teenagers, the person they go to is an adult then to get involved with the teen to say, I'm concerned for my friend. And you often have to risk the friendship in the short term to get your friend help, because it doesn't matter if your friend is mad at you as long as they stay alive. I think without a doubt, you have to ask yourself, if you're in the position of worrying about a friend or a loved one, how will I feel if I have that gut feeling that something just wasn't right and I find out tomorrow they died by suicide and I knew it. I knew I could have done something. Can I live with that? So I think the fear of somebody's going to be mad at you or hate you, you can deal with that. You can talk that out at a later point. You can't talk it out if your friend dies by suicide. That's right. And for the individuals who might be struggling with their own suicidal thoughts, what can they do to get help? What we know is that even these thoughts of suicide wax and wane. So if you think back to another time that you felt this way, you may have felt this way, but not at the same level of intensity. There are moments that it's worse and moments that it's better. So I think you have to look back and know that it can get better. The other thing is, Help is available. There are some really excellent treatments now in suicide prevention. And mental health providers who are trained in these approaches know how to target the thoughts of suicide directly. And so ask. I think it's just like if you were going for open-heart surgery and you would ask the surgeon, how do you do it and what should I expect? I think you can absolutely ask those same questions of the therapist that you're going to see. Tell me what you would expect. Tell me about my treatment plan. Tell me what, how you plan to help me. And I think it's very, very important. And if you don't like that, if that response with the, from that therapist doesn't work for you, find somebody else. Ask your friends. Ask your primary care provider. Ask around for recommendations. And we're getting to the end of the interview, and I'm thinking there may be people that have listened to this and that think, gosh, well, now that we know like there's so much available to us, and I don't know if there's a prevention program in my community, how would someone go about finding that out? Who would they go to in their community to either find out where the programs are or to start one? How would someone go about that? Yeah, I think the first thing that you would probably want to do is find out who your state suicide prevention coordinator is. It's possible there are activities already happening in your state or community that you don't know about. And we have a list of the state suicide prevention coordinators on the SPRC website, sprc.org. So I would probably start by contacting your state coordinator. Perhaps there is a chapter of a coalition nearby. The American Foundation for Suicide Prevention has local chapters, AFSP, 
And that would be another group that does a lot of suicide prevention planning and advocacy. If you've heard of any of the, the walks to prevent suicide, usually AFSP is involved in those. I think those would be the two resources I would look to first if you were really interested in partnering with others in your community in suicide prevention. And we will definitely put links to those organizations in the blog post that goes along with this episode for those that are listening. So, Julie, before I let you go, is there anything else that you think that we should cover that people should know about suicide prevention, or do you think we gave it a good covering? No, I I really appreciate your time and, and your interest. I think that we covered a lot of material today and appreciate that. I think the most important thing is for people just to remember that suicide prevention is only possible when everybody feels that they have a role to play and the awareness that mental health and and behavioral health care providers alone can't reduce the rates of suicide in our country, that it really does take a comprehensive approach. Everybody needs to know that they have a role to play in saving the lives of people that they care about and just encourage you to do that much as you would if you saw somebody having a heart attack in your midst or knew that somebody was struggling with cancer and you would step in, ask how you could help, offer to support them by taking them to appointments. I think we have to treat um, suicide and mental health as the same type of health care issue and be equally as supportive. Thank you, Dr. Julie Goldstein Grummet. Director of Prevention and Practice at the Suicide Prevention Resource Center, or SPRC.org. Thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you again. You're listening to Coaching Through Chaos, your host, Dr. Colleen Mullen, bringing you what you need to succeed. Thank you, Dr. Julie Goldstein Gromit, Director of Prevention and Practice at the Suicide Prevention Resource Center. Dr. Julie gave us a ton of information, and it's a lot to take in on a very serious topic, as I talked about in the beginning of this episode and we talked about throughout. So please check out sprc.org for more information. Remember, if you are feeling suicidal, even just having fleeting thoughts of it, please give a call to the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, 1-800-273-TALK, T-A-L-K. So 1-800-273-T-A-L-K. So much of what I do every day in my life since July 1st, 2007 is directly related in response to my brother Scott's suicide. It makes me appreciate things that I have going on in my life. It makes me want for more happiness and love in the people that I hold dear and in my own life. And it brings a different kind of knowledge when I sit in the therapist chair with my clients. I guess if some of them are listening, they they now know some of the pain that I carry. When you're out and about, you never know who's having that day where human interaction or a smile or a hello or a phone call could make a world of difference in someone's life. So 
I want to say, in the memory of my brother Scott, do that today for someone. Make some eye contact, smile, say hello, and certainly if you know someone that may be showing warning signs that we talked about, or you are relating to feeling that kind of emotional pain and despair, please reach out for help. Tell someone. You might not make the call yourself, but maybe your friend can make it for you. Maybe if you're a teenager and you're hearing this, tell a friend, tell a teacher, don't keep this in. Okay, it's tough to get help, but it can change your life. On that note, we're going to end this episode of the Coaching Through Chaos podcast. Stay tuned next week for another episode designed to motivate, inspire, and empower you. In the meantime, I need to thank Dr. B for my audio engineering and producing. And I want to thank BennettSullivanMusic.com for my theme music. And if you're going to follow me between episodes, you can find me and reach out to me on Twitter with the handle at Dr. Colleen Mullen. And if you go to coachingthroughchaos.com slash podcast, you'll be able to sign up for my mailing list where you'll get up-to-date information on the show, on guests, on guest blog posts that I'm doing around the internet, and on updated information about my private practice. When you sign up for the mailing list, I have a thank you gift for you, and that is a free copy of my ebook, Five Ways. It's 100 Tips for Living a Happier, Healthier Life. So maybe you'll check that out. Sign up for the mailing list, get a copy of the ebook, and then I'll be back next week with another episode. In the meantime, I hope you have a great week, and if you've got chaos in your life, I hope you're finding your way through it. Take care.